This is Lisa Murkowski, Chairman of the Energy and Natural Resources Committee with Murkowski's Message Podcast. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the sixth episode of Murkowski's Message. It's Thursday, the 18th of June. I appreciate you joining me today. As our nation is grappling with the devastating effects of the coronavirus pandemic and and works to address racial inequality, uh, Mother Nature is also uh, not giving us a break. We're we're looking here on the East Coast and worrying about a, a difficult hurricane season ahead. Uh, in Alaska, when we talk about um, about natural hazards, we know all too well the unpredictability of, of earthquakes, landslides, tsunamis. The earthquakes um, are are well well recorded. 1964, we saw the second largest earthquake in recorded history, and uh, the devastation to to our state, the loss of lives. Um, uh, again, you, you don't forget something like the Good Friday earthquake. And then just uh, uh, just a couple years ago now, uh, 7.1 uh, earthquake hit southeast, cracking the foundations of schools and homes. Fortunately, no one died. Uh, we've learned a lot from, from previous earthquakes. But uh, it's not just earthquakes that we contend with. We have landslides. And in Ketchikan, where I was born, we saw a landslide just this past year uh, destroy a local grocery store. Um, right now, uh, we're seeing um, volcanic uh, eruptions along the uh, uh, down in the Aleutians. Um, I think it's Makushan that is on on volcano alert or yellow alert right now. Um, and so there is a lot of activity in in our state, as we know too well. Right now, scientists are closely watching what could become the largest landslide in the state's history. It's uh, it's located in an area in Prince William Sound near Whittier. It is an unstable slope uh, that measures about a mile tall and a mile and a half wide, so incredible in size, sitting above a, a, a glacier in Barry Arm. And the concern is that it could a landslide could trigger a tsunami that could affect hundreds of people in the area. Anchorage Daily News recently reported that the unstable slope could begin to move move fast, so fast it might crash suddenly into the water below, forcing a massive wave nearly 1,000 feet in height. Now, that quote coming out of the Anchorage Daily News certainly, certainly grabs your attention. But uh, earthquakes, landslides, tsunamis, volcanoes, I've got to remind my, my colleagues here in the Senate that Alaska faces threats from any one of these hazards, and and sometimes all of them. And we see it, uh, we're monitoring 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Last year in Congress here, we successfully authorized the National Volcano Early Warning System. Uh, I've also been working with Senator Feinstein to reauthorize the National Earthquakes Hazard Reduction Program. we are working now, uh, my team is, is working with a number of agencies to determine the monitoring needs for the landslide and tsunami hazard in, in Barry Arm. So uh, there's a lot that continues to go on. I'm on the Appropriations Committee and working to include robust funding for volcano, earthquake, tsunami, and landslide monitoring. 
uh, within my interior approach bill. And uh, then I'm also working with Senator Cantwell uh, to get our National Landslide Preparedness Act across the finish line. So there's a lot that we're doing legislatively and on appropriations front to, to monitor our hazards. So I wanted to take a, a little bit of time uh, for, for this particular podcast to focus on, on uh, the great work that we're seeing in the state and working with our local communities on, on these monitoring uh, situations and, and the role that, uh, that it plays. So today, a couple guests that I have are uh, Mike West and David Fee from the University of Alaska Banks Geophysical Institute. Um, I, I know, Mike, we have had you testify before the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Um, appreciate what both of you do here, but uh, I've introduced you as, as being with the uh, with UAS Geophysical Institute. I, if both of you want to just quickly introduce yourselves and, and, and tell our listeners what you do on a daily basis, um, that'd be great, and then we can get into the, to the meat of this program here, which is some of the hazards that you're monitoring. So, so Mike, why don't you go first? Uh, yeah, I'm Michael West, and uh, as you said, I'm a research professor at the Geophysical Institute, but uh, the majority of my time goes toward directing the Alaska Earthquake Center, uh, who carries out, uh, seismic, among other things, a seismic monitoring mission uh, on behalf of the state. Great. And David, why don't you give us a quick intro? Sure. Uh, yeah, first, thank you for the discussion today, Senator. Um, my name is uh, David Fee. I'm also a research professor at the UAF Geophysical Institute. Uh, I'm also the coordinating scientist at the Alaska Volcano Observatory, or AVO. And AVO is a cooperative organization with federal, state, and university components, uh, you know, working together with a, a common mission to you know, study volcanic hazards and volcanic processes in the state. Well, and we had an, a, a great opportunity, um, you and I, and along with the Secretary of Energy, uh, Dan Briette, to, uh, to take a look at one of Alaska's local volcanoes. So I'll ask you a question on that in a little bit, David. But uh, thank you both for, for, for joining with us. So um, I, I mentioned the, uh, the, the news article um, coming out of the ADN about uh, this landslide hazard in, in Barry Arm. Um, I think it's fair to say it's, it has caught uh, the attention of Alaskans. So, um, Mike, why don't we start with you? Uh, how, how, what do we know about this? Um, and uh, how did we how how did we learn about it? Yeah, this all started really quite suddenly back in April when researchers at Woods Hole and elsewhere uh, were looking through uh, NASA satellite imagery and uh, essentially doing like time-lapse imaging, looking for changes in the, the topography of the land. And they discovered um, this slope, which over the course of several years has been um, uh, creeping, if you will, the term we use, sliding very slowly. Uh, with that uh, could potentially be a, you know, a massive landslide. It's a, um, 
the volume of this slide would be sort of on par with hundreds of super tankers. And while it's moving very slowly right now, the concern, as you laid out in the beginning, is that this landslide, if it were to go catastrophically in one big event, would be the equivalent of a magnitude 7-plus earthquake. And when that rock entered the water, it would create a, a, a considerable tsunami, which would reach uh, nearby communities in a matter of you know, 10, 20 minutes. So there's a lot of ifs in there. This is not something that's definitely going to happen. But if it did, it could be truly catastrophic. So let me ask you, Mike, on that. So David, it's hard when I don't have you in front of me and I'm just listening to voices, but in terms <laughs> of the, the threat the threat to Whittier or, or to um, uh, those in surrounding areas, this is an area that is pretty remote. Whittier would be the, the closest community. But um, can you speak to, um, to what we know to be the, the, the threat, or is this something that we are still still trying to understand how significant a threat this might be? What we do know is, uh, we, is from previous events, uh, we have had uh, large landslides, both above water and underwater, that uh, we've seen in the past, not on this, quite on this scale. Um, but we know that this is a real thing that can happen. I think the question you're getting at is, what exactly is the risk to, say, uh, the town of Whittier. Right. And it's an unsatisfactory answer, but that, that's evolving very quickly. What's needed right now, what people are in the process of doing, is some pretty sophisticated modeling. You know, how big really is this rock volume? What would happen when it hits the water? And the big question is how would those waves propagate out of Barry Arm, around a few corners, and get to Whittier? And is it higher? than the tsunami threats already faced by Whittier that you know, we have some knowledge of. And we don't have a definitive answer at that point, but there's a pretty big team of people working on this. And, and so that's where all this modeling then comes in. Exactly. So, what, what did that, the modeling is needed to figure out the impact on you know, actual communities. Right. So uh, let me ask a question, and I'm, I'm just going off a of poor recall here. But wasn't it in Latuya Bay that we had a significant um, tsunami that was precipitated by a landslide or an earthquake? Is that and it was it was it was a century ago, correct? In the 1950s, uh, but it has happened multiple. Geologic evidence shows it's happened a number of times in Latuya Bay, a particularly unstable area. Uh, that one involves some ice as well as rock. Uh, it can be triggered by earthquakes. But yes, that's absolutely one of the historical examples that we look to to, uh, to appreciate just what this can do. Okay, and so then in terms of what you have shared um, with me just now, you're, you're saying that it could be it in, 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 in the, the Barry Arm example, it could be uh, the equivalent of a, of a 7.0 on the Richter uh, earthquake and then the crashing into the ocean. We haven't seen anything of that size and scope um, in, in our recorded history then, is what you're saying. That Lutuya Bay has been big, but it's not been big like this could be big. 
Uh, we had a, a pretty good parallel uh, just a handful of years ago down in Icy Bay, on the southern coast, a little closer to the Canadian border, where uh, one of these large, unstable uh, slopes failed and did create, uh, you know, very significant uh, tsunami action. But it was in an area uh, with no population and actually went uh, undetected at the time. It was discovered uh, a bit later. But so actually, there's a lot of good uh, precedent and knowledge about these events. So, so then let's let's get to the monitoring side of it. In other words, really trying to understand um, what we're what we're working on. How um, I, I had asked uh, Noah for an update on our tsunami warning system and the tsunami modeling in Whittier. Asked him that last week. How can we ensure that agencies like NOAA are working with USGS to respond to? overlapping hazards like landslides and, and tsunamis. And then, and then will our National Landslide Preparedness Act help in this? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And at the scientist level, I think there's a lot of really great coordination between those agencies already. You know, scientists are pretty good at getting in touch with whatever colleague might be able to help them, regardless of agency. That said, it's far easier when policies, bureaucracies, agencies, et cetera, recognize and value that cooperation. So your question about the National Landslide Preparedness Act, I think, is key, because landslides are one of the last major hazards that really don't have a lot of policy or congressional uh, guidance. And we have reason to believe that events like Barry Arm may be on the rise. So there's a lot of need. Uh, for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just had a conversation just a couple of days ago with my colleague from Washington, Senator Cantwell, and I mentioned the situation that we're monitoring in Barry Arm, and she reminded me of the, the devastation of the landslide in, in also um, Washington and the loss uh, of life there. So uh, you, you are right. We need to be paying more and more attention to, to this, this particular national uh, natural hazard of, of landslides. So one more quick question for you, Mike, and then we'll turn to David. Um, you mentioned that you've got a, a, a pretty good team out there right now that is, is, is looking to evaluate and, and learn more about the threat that it poses and how we can keep people safe. Can you just describe who all is involved? Yeah, so this is Mike. Uh, this is, it's really been a fascinating agency response to watch. Because this event, right, landslide, big earthquake, uh, tsunami, doesn't fall neatly under any single entity's purview. Uh, the U.S. Geological Survey uh, holds that landslide responsibility. Uh, the Earthquake Center, uh, the Alaska Earthquake Center, carries out the seismic monitoring mission in that area. NOAA holds the mission for tsunami warning. Uh, the State uh, Department of Natural Resources and the Geological Survey has kind of been pulling it all together and providing clear messaging at the state level. And there's a whole host of academic groups that are bringing forward all sorts of you know, novel techniques to apply. So I have to say, uh, the response from all of these groups working day to day over the past uh, month or so has been quite uh, impressive. The, the goal right now, we're in June, 
and we have a relatively short field season. There's no, we don't get to work 12 months of the year uh, in coastal Alaska uh, on the ground. So the real goal right now is getting in there to evaluate it uh, in person and to get instrumentation uh, in and around that site so that we can track this feature and potentially even warn over the coming months uh, and years. So this is relatively new to a lot of us, but there's a lot of expertise in Scandinavia to draw from where they have um, you know, a lot of these fjord-like structures and uh, rock falls and a lot of communities around. So a lot of groups are learning really quickly. Good. Well, it's good to hear good, good partnering, good, uh, good teamwork out there. So thank you for all that. So David, let's turn to you uh, for a minute. I mentioned um, uh, right after your introduction uh, the, uh, the trip that you and I and Secretary of Energy uh, Dan Briette took to Mount Spur. Uh, which for those who are not familiar, this is a stratovolcano directly west of Anchorage. It erupted in the early 1990s. Um, I certainly remember the, the, the blanket of ash that, uh, that covered our yard there in, in Anchorage. But uh, fortunately, when we took our visit, Mount Spur was relatively quiet. Uh, but what, a, what an extraordinary uh, trip that was, uh, just from an educational perspective. And, and again, we had a, a pretty, pretty much a bluebird day, which I understand doesn't doesn't happen every day up there. But uh, it was certainly memorable and, and educational. Um, I have uh, I have been working in the appropriations committee to uh, to help the Alaska Volcano Observatory convert a, a series of monitors from analog to digital systems. This is something that we've been, been doing for a, a period of, of time. And uh, uh, we have certainly learned from, from those uh, of you who are, are leading us at, uh, at the Geophysical Institute how important that is. But, but David, why don't you explain to, to our listeners um, uh, exactly why it's important that um, that we continue this monitoring, but also this transition from from analog to digital, uh, what that means, and and then you know as we're as we're uh, just about a year now um, uh, since the Dingle Act was put in place and and this National Volcano Early Warning System signed into law. Uh, walk us through a little bit of how that implementation is going, if you will. Sure. Yeah, so this is David. Um, and, and first, thank you again to you and your team for the work on, on these topics. It's, uh, it's been critical in, in moving them forward and really making them happen. Uh, so, so I think, you know, a little bit of background here. Um, in Alaska, you know, as you know well, we have a, a lot of historically active volcanoes, 54 of them, uh, and five of them are currently actually in a, a state of unrest. And to monitor these volcanoes, we have a network of stations uh, across Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. We have over 200 monitoring stations. And these are spread out over a very large distance and in remote areas. And most of these stations are actually using this kind of um, outdated analog radio uh, communications and, and uh, analog sensors. And uh, we need to convert all those stations to, to digital communications and digital sensors. And primarily that's to achieve compliance with the National Telecommunications and Information Administration. And um, as part of that, uh, 
kind of digital conversion, we also put in you know new instruments as well. So uh, these new digital instruments are much more sensitive and much higher quality than before. So you know, first of all, we have to achieve that compliance, and then uh, kind of um, as doing that, we we improve our our uh, monitoring as well. And there's 180. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask. So for kind of the average Alaskan. Um, when you mm -hmm. say that you have improved the sensitivity, what would that mean in terms of information that then translates back to them? Sure, that, that's a good question. Um, so here's an example from last year, actually. I, I was helping out. We um, uh, upgraded some, some sensors at Dutton Volcano, which is uh, near um, Cold Bay. And previously, we could detect earthquakes in the region and maybe like a magnitude. Uh, two, magnitude one, and by putting these new sensors out, we're able to detect earthquakes down, you know, uh, to like magnitude zero, like, you know, an order of magnitude or two mm. lower. Um, wow. So really the sensitivity that we're able to get with these new uh, stations is, is better, and um, they also have a lot of other, you know, kind of scientific and monitoring benefits that, um, that it allows us to have. Great. And so then, insofar as as how this implementation is going or how this conversion is going, um, how, how much longer do you anticipate uh, this, this taking to, to do the conversion uh, to, to be fully digital? Sure, so we're in the process of you know, upgrading with uh, around 185 stations total. Uh, we've completed two-thirds of those upgrades and we plan to complete the, the rest of the upgrades uh, you know, this summer and, and next. Right. And, uh, and then build on from right. there. Yeah. Now I know, I know that um, during this this time of of, of COVID, um, we have unfortunately seen um, a fair amount of the research that uh, goes on in Alaska. Uh, much of the research through the University of Alaska. Uh, we've seen some of that research that has been curtailed simply because we can't get the researchers out in the field. Um, and, and, and as has been mentioned, we've got a, we've got a pretty short field season in Alaska. So I, I want to give a shout out to the, to the team at UAS Geophysical Institute and, and their partners at USGS for, for all that you are doing while you're keeping an eye on the hazards that, that face Alaska. But uh, David, can you, um, can you tell me if uh, and, and how um, your team's ability to monitor, operate, and research hazards in Alaska has been impacted by the pandemic? Sure. Uh, yeah, so this is David. Um, I guess the kind of the good news uh, or the positive aspect of this is that over the past, you know, handful of years, we've uh, kind of changed how we monitor, um, you know, volcanoes and, and hazards, and uh, we're less reliant on having people, you know, in the office or in a kind of this you know, typical operations room that, you know, people might think of a scientist watching, you know, wiggles move across the screen. Um, you know, and volcanoes and hazards happen all times of day. Volcanoes seem to like to erupt in the middle of the night, so, uh, you know, staffing offices is, is challenging to start with. Um, so what what we've done is, you know, we have a lot of our, our monitoring and communications already kind of happening remotely. We have these 
automated alarms that will you know detect some sort of activity and then you know send notifications to our phones etc uh, when something is going on and then we can respond you know from home uh, you know pretty well um, so as we've had to transition to kind of working from home and working away from the office I think you know we've been able to really uh, keep up our, our monitoring um, and research missions uh, for the most part and if we had to do this, you know, 10 years ago or even maybe five, that would have been a different story. Um, the, the, real impact has been, oh yeah, the real impact has been, as you said, you know, getting people out into the field and doing field maintenance and field research. And uh, that's, that's definitely been a challenge. And we've had to, you know, um, kind of pause some of our field work and, and modify it and, and really be cautious about you know, where we can go and uh, only visiting the high priority sites, et cetera. Well, and I appreciate you saying that. Know that uh, uh, we're, we're certainly going to want to double back, uh, not only uh, with you on, on what you're doing from the monitoring perspective, but, but recognizing that when we have these significant monitoring research projects that go on, when, when you do miss a season, Oftentimes that, that has consequence. So uh, knowing how we can help, uh, we can't do the research for you back here, but we can help with the, with the funding aspect of it. So I, I, again, I, I want to acknowledge the good work that has gone on, that does go on on a daily basis to keep, to keep Alaskans safe, but also just informed. And, and whether it is informed of, a, of, of something that um, may happen or may not happen in the case of a landslide there at Barry Arm or, or the monitoring that goes on with the, with the uh, volcanoes. What so many of you do, what you, you folks and, and your teams do is, is very, very important. I think it's just a reminder um, to us that at a time when technology allows us to be pretty smart with a lot of things, that Mother Nature is not afraid to, to speak up and, and let her presence be known, sometimes in a pretty violent way. But uh, with, with good folks like, like you that are, are, are trying to keep us on top of the science, um, it gives us a little bit of a heads up when, um, when she's, she's ready to, to vent a little bit. So I want to thank both of you. Thank you, Mike. Mike West and, and David, David Fee, for joining me as we have uh, discussed some of the very unique challenges that, uh, that face our great state and, and how we can be ready uh, and be prepared. So thank you both. Appreciate the time that you've given me and, and all of our listeners today. So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Thank you for sir. your uh, continued interest in hazards and your coordination with colleagues uh, in the Senate to, to really push a lot of these issues forward. Uh, it does not go unnoticed. It makes our job possible. Thank you. Well, thank you both. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Appreciate it. And with that, we will join up with folks on our next Murkowski message. So be safe and be healthy.